For those of you who are able to attend every service throughout the week or perhaps you're keeping up online, I forgot to uh, mention something amazing took place Wednesday night. And for the first time ever in my life, going through three books and being in the same chapter in each book. (laughs) This is the life of a pastor, amen? This is where I find my excitement now. Genesis 3, Acts 3, Esther 3, amen. You too can be a pastor. Well, this is now our 15th message in this chapter, and we are finally at the end of the chapter, but we've covered far too much to try and recap. But we have seen the fall of mankind, the curse upon the serpent and, serpent and Satan, the curse upon women, and the curse upon men. We have seen the promise of the Redeemer to come. Adam and Eve's faith in that promise, and then after they place their faith in God's Word, God sacrificed an innocent animal, shed its blood, transferred from the animal to them, making them coverings for their shame, and in that we saw a clear picture of the gospel. Jesus is our innocent sacrificial lamb who God sacrificed upon the cross. Jesus shed His blood... And those who place their faith and trust in Christ experience a transfer of Christ's righteousness to them. His righteousness is imputed to us. And it is a robe of righteousness that indicates to God our sins have been removed. Hallelujah. Let's pick up where we left off last week. We'll read verses 22 through 24. The Bible says... And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And you might think, boy, that sure sounds harsh. Well, he didn't make him walk. He drove him out. (laughs) And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. In the beginning of verse 22, God says, Behold, the man is become like one of us, as one of us. We've covered this thought while we were in chapter 1, and so I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but who is it that God is speaking to? Remember in chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we have here in chapter 3 another proof text of our triune God. God is represented through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God is manifested in three persons, though He is one. We would call this the Holy Trinity. Now, I know that's hard for some to grasp, but remember that our God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. And the fact is, our infinite God probably shouldn't be completely understood by our finite minds. And some things we just have to learn to take by faith. By wholly trusting in God's Word. 
The Bible says in 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, modern versions have completely uh, corrupted that verse, and it will say something like this, For there are three that testify. That's all it says in newer versions. But our King James Bible is clear that there are three which bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, who we know is Christ, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And so, without the us of Genesis chapter 1 and 3, there is no salvation. Because who else would be qualified to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice to redeem mankind and reconcile us back to God? Only God's Son is that righteous. He is righteous. And as God the Father poured out His wrath upon Christ to make payment for our sins in order that we might receive the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Why did God have to do it that way? Because you and I cannot be good enough to save ourselves. We cannot be righteous enough to be the sacrifice that God would accept for the payment of our sins. We needed somebody to redeem us because we're all sinners. So we needed a sinless, perfect sacrifice. So in verse 22 here of our text, when God says, Behold, the man is become as one of us, God is speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. Now, how did mankind become like God? It's, it says, by knowing good and evil. And understand, this is the only way that mankind became like God. I know there are many teaching that we can be gods. There's religions built upon that. But what we're being told here is the only way that we became like God is by knowing good and evil. You see, man did not become eternal. Man did not become holy through all of this. Man did not become all... I'm talking about in their sin. Man did not become all-knowing, all-powerful, or all-present. Man cannot see the end from the beginning. Man does not know what it means to be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And so we are mortal. But in the fall, we became like God in that we know good and evil. And this is how Satan tempted Eve, if you remember in the beginning of the chapter, in verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Remember we said then, Satan packages his lies with just enough truth to make it palatable that we'll believe it enough in order to partake in what it is he is tempting us in. And so in a sense, Satan was telling the truth in verse 5. But of course, Satan meant it in a way that they could become like a godlike being. But by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it did not change their genetic makeup to that of a god, but it did change their mental experience now throughout the rest of their life. They now would know good and evil. It would have been better for man to come to this understanding by just realizing that disobedience to God is evil and obedience to God is good. But sadly, we've had to learn this the hard way through sin. And now we have guilt, fear, shame, condemnation in our fallen state apart from God. And I've mentioned this in a previous message, but... What happened in us becoming like God is our conscience has been awakened to sin. And perhaps we could call it one of God's paradoxes because the awakening of our conscience to sin also 
brought with it the means of the physical preservation of mankind. What in the world are you talking about? For example, by God's grace, He has built into all of us, even in our lost state, He has built into our consciousness for us to understand, to be aware of what is the difference between right and wrong. All of you know that. Romans 2, 14 and 15, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in the hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. God also built into the conscience of the human race the desire for the institution of marriage and the family. We see this even in pagan cultures. When done right and when done with God in mind, godly parents will desire to curb the sin nature of their children in order that we might raise up a godly seed. This is why we discipline. If you don't love your kids, you don't discipline. I know that's contrary to modern teaching, but that's the fact. And because we could get into too much trouble when left to ourselves and to our own devices, God also instituted work. And He says to the man, go get a job and labor. You say, what did He say to the woman? Don't worry about it. She's got enough on her plate. (laughs) Some of you have no idea what I mean there. Think of the evil that we would get into if we didn't work. You understand, leisure can be lethal because of our propensity for sin. In addition, in Genesis 9-6, God's going to institute human government where there's going to be capital punishment so that evil can be punished against those who kill others, other human beings that are made in the image and likeness of God. And then we'll see God establish nationalism in Genesis 11-1-9 at the Tower of Babel when He confounded all the languages. God is against a one-world government because people who are running the government might just become corrupt. That's a laughable statement right there. They just might become corrupt. All right, well, I'm not running for office, so we'll stop there. So what does God do? He divides up power. And this is what made the framers of our nation so wise. They knew they needed a division of power between our three branches of government. We didn't need a king. So we had the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches. There were checks and balances built into the framework of our nation and our government, which is now being ignored, and look at the mess we're in now. Why? Because there's not a balance of power. So knowing right from... I'm going somewhere with this. Knowing right from wrong, establishing marital relationships in a family, working to make a living... Governmental powers and nationalism are all gifts from God instituted just here in Genesis to complement our awakened conscience and help govern mankind while living this life below. You see, we all know that we have sinned. We all understand what is out of bounds when it comes to a marriage. We, We know that we ought to work. We know government has its place because we know when someone's worthy of the death penalty. And we know why nationalism is important. It is all built into our conscience by God. And if you doubt that, just try this with your children. Tell one of your children, go mow the lawn and pay them $5. 
And then next week, tell another child, go mow the lawn and I'll give you $50. What do you think the child who got paid $5 is going to let you know? That's not fair. When? Who gave you the idea that life was supposed to be fair? Nobody had to teach you that. It is ingrained in who you are. It is in your conscience. We have the idea of equity because it's been placed there by God. So even though a consciousness of sin came at the price of sin, I want you to understand, this is ultimately where I'm going here. Our conscience isn't the problem. Okay? The the problem isn't that we have a conscience. The problem is when we allow our conscience to become seared. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And we're witnessing this very clearly in the day in which we live. Just try to imagine a world before the fall. I mean, try to imagine where there were no thoughts of evil, there was no committing of sin, and all that wickedness entails. Try to imagine that. You can't. We, we can't even wrap our minds around what it would be like to have a world without sin. And now we are all, we've all become desensitized to evil. People watch bloody and violent movies. They watch violent and bloody television shows. View very graphic and sensual material. Listen to wicked lyrics. Play video games where the goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And they don't even blink an eye. But you see, it doesn't bother most people anymore today to view all that. We are so desensitized. Our minds, our eyes, and our ears have so become full of sin and evil that we can watch crimes committed in broad daylight out on the street of New York or Chicago or something like that, and and it doesn't even bother us, and we just go about our daily lives. I check the news every morning. That's part of my routine. And I I, I read these articles where so-and-so just got stabbed in broad daylight downtown. And people just walking by. Why? We are so desensitized to all of this. We hear about all manner of evil, and we're no longer surprised. I mean, when's the last time you've been surprised by something somebody did? We are not only awakened to sin, but the conscience of many is being seared with a hot iron. And as a result, the divine institutions, which I just mentioned, are now under attack. We now are seeing a corrupted view of right and wrong in our society. What is evil is being called good. And what is good is being called evil. Marriage and the home are under attack. Work is under attack. Vote for me, I'll make all your debt disappear. Well, our government is crumbling before our eyes. Our nationalism is slipping away as we watch for the desire of a one-world government take shape in this uh, world that we live in. All of these are under assault. And when these divine institutions begin to dissipate, just like we are witnessing in our nation and around the world, 
then understand God's judgment is on the way. How do, we, how do we know that? By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, the world is so corrupted and their thoughts are on evil continually. Let me read you the verse. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God's judgment then came upon the earth. God flooded the earth and killed every, all of mankind except for eight souls because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Though America may exist by name, the United States of America is on track to fall and experience God's severe judgment because all of these institutions that I've mentioned are under assault and they are eroding before our eyes. And as these institutions go, so we go as a people nationally. It could be our Lord's return is very soon. Luke 17, 26, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. And because of the wickedness of man, because the wickedness of man would be great upon the earth, and because the imaginations and thoughts of, uh, of their heart would be evil, I want you to understand this is why God had to remove them from the Garden of Eden. God had to keep them from the tree of life because if they put forth their hand, took of the tree of life and ate, the Bible says they would live forever. And at first, when we read something like this, we may think how unfair God is. After all, why wouldn't it be a good thing to have the ability to take from the tree of life after sinning. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Actually, it'd be a very bad thing. And God here is being very gracious by keeping fallen man from the tree of life at this point. Imagine if they went and ate from the tree of life, they would live forever in their fallen state. Can you imagine Adam and Eve joining our church? At 6,000 years of age, they would live with the curse upon them forever. Therefore, God keeping them from the tree of life was His goodness. Can you imagine living in your sinful flesh forever? Some of you had a hard time getting out of bed. Now, think of the wickedness that would be committed and would continue on if we lived forever in this fallen state. Think of what would happen if there was no end to the Adolf Hitlers of our world. Imagine people like Mao Zedong, Benito Mussolini, Fidel Castro, Osama bin Laden, Pol Pot, and Joseph Stalin never dying. And it's not that we take, we take joy in death, but we must face the facts and acknowledge that there are certain people that when they die, it is a good thing because their wicked, has, their wicked reign has come to an end. Do we really want to live in a world before the flood, those conditions? Do we want to live in a world where every thought of the imaginations of the heart were only evil continually? I would say, of course not. For this reason, God has to send them out of the Garden of Eden and away from the tree of life. And the beginning of verse 24 tells us God had to drive them out. This is very strong language here. 
because this is mentioned twice, he, he sent them out, then he drove them out. Most commentators believe God first gave them the orders to leave when, he said, when it says God sent them forth. But them not wanting to leave the Garden of Eden, God had to up his ante and say, okay, I've got to drive you out. Now, can you imagine them asking, why can't we go back in? Why can't things be like they used to be? It's because this is what sin does. Sin destroys. They can't go back in. The Garden of Eden life is now over for them and us. And we've all probably experienced those things in our life where we've made a sinful decision and it's, it's maybe impacted a relationship or something and we've desperately wanted to fix it. But no matter how much we've tried, that relationship never seems to be fully restored to where it was before. Why? Because of sin. You see, we have got to understand how horrendous sin is. See, how horrendous is it? It costs the life of God's only begotten Son. And what you may think is not that big a deal, God sent His Son to die for you. May we learn to see sin as God sees it. Verse 24, so he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So we could do an entire sermon right here or two. And I'm going to try to pour a lot into the remaining time we have left. So stay with me as I transition into study bug mode. God secures them from the tree of life by driving them out of the garden and to be sure that nothing unholy approaches, God places cherubims and a flaming sword which is turning in all directions to guard the way. So God's expulsion was not only His grace, but it is also His justice. But I want you to notice something here because I think it is often taught incorrectly. But notice how the flaming sword among the cherubims is not hiding the way. That's what most will say. No, it doesn't say that. It says it is keeping the way. What does that mean? It is guarding the way. It is protecting the way. God never hides His way to Him. But he must protect his holiness. And and while that was made known in the Old Testament, we understand there'd be no entrance until Christ's sacrifice and his blood was shed. But but in the end, the Bible says in Revelation 21-27, in reference to the holy city to come, the new Jerusalem, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's this flaming sword, and it's turning every way. And this would prevent any who would try to unlawfully enter from any direction because there's only one way back in. There aren't many directions to God. But there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's one way. John 10 verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. God is protecting the way into His presence. And there is only one way to Him, which is through Christ. But with a flaming sword guarding the way, it would seem that one would die in order to approach unto God and to enter His presence. And that's exactly right. Only the holy can approach a holy God. And to be made holy, we must allow God's consuming fire to burn away all that we are in this flesh. We must die to self by accepting Christ's free gift of salvation. And we cannot approach God by who we are carnally. In your flesh. In your sin nature. We cannot approach God. But we must die. We must die to self and have Christ living in us in order that we might appear before God. Now because we read that God placed the cherubims and the flaming sword at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life, we can surmise that God took Adam and Eve and put them on the east of the garden. And I believe there is a great picture here. God's way back in would be from the east. When God gave the directions for the Old Testament tabernacle, He placed only one door into the tabernacle, and it was located on the east. The principal tribe on the east, when they encamped in the wilderness toward the rising of the sun, was the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of the lawgiver and the scepter, the tribe from which Christ, the Son, would arise, our lawgiver and king. To the west of the tabernacle, the principal tribe was Ephraim, who was one of the sons of Joseph, whose name means double fruit. He was half Gentile. Joseph was the fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall, we read in Genesis 49. And from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. You see, mankind would first have to be placed in the east in order that the law would lead them to Christ. And then when Christ came, the gospel primarily went westward toward Ephraim, gathering in double fruit through our great shepherd, from among both Israelites and Gentiles. The wise men came to see Christ from where? The east. When Paul went on his missionary journeys, he went west. In fact, he was forced by the Holy Ghost to to continue going west. And through that, Joseph became the fruitful bough whose branches run over the wall. And the picture I see is God needs us to approach from the east and go through the law. Why? Because the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And only after death to self through the law, law brings death. Only death to ourself going through the law from the east in order uh, can we receive God's mercy and God's grace. And then we we become fruitful for Christ's kingdom. Understand that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden by God's law. The tree of life was there by God's grace. But they violated God's law, and now they have to be expelled and come through God's law. And the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have God removed our transgressions from us. And there's a lot more we could get into, but I can see I'm boring you to death. We'll move on.
Now, let's try to get this scene in our minds as I, as I begin to wrap this up of what is taking place because we do find hope here in, in a return to the tree of life. What just took place before this, God has sacrificed an innocent lamb. Because of that, if you can see in your mind, there is blood on the ground. Blood has been shed. An innocent animal has been sacrificed. There are now these two cherubims at, at least these two cherubims, and there's light in the middle from this flaming sword. And in this, I believe we can also see a foreshadowing of the tabernacle, where we have to the east, when you enter in the tabernacle, we have the altar where the sacrifice is offered and its blood shed. And then inside the Holy of Holies, to the west, there is the mercy seat. What's, on, what's there on the mercy seat? Two cherubims that are facing each other. And it was there that God, who is light, would manifest His glory and He would commune with Israel through God's man. But the tabernacle, understand, and later the, the temple, were only a shadow of the greater tabernacle to come, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all the shadows, types, figures, and pictures of the earthly tabernacle by offering His life as a sacrifice for our sin. And there at the foot of the cross, we can see that it is stained with blood. And on resurrection morning, according to the Gospel of John, guess who's sitting in the tomb on each side where Jesus used to lay? Two angels. The Bible says one at the head and one at His feet. And when Christ arose again, there was light. They discovered the empty tomb as the day began to dawn. And of course, Jesus is light who came bursting out of the tomb. So I hope you can see the great parallel here in Genesis 3.24 the tabernacle, and our Lord's sacrifice and resurrection. And best of all, when Christ willingly laid down His life, <laughs> the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, which was located to the west, and the way back to God was opened up for whosoever will come. And now, Christ is our mercy seat, and only through Him can we commune with God. This is amazing. And what do we find at the throne of God? We find seraphims protecting God's holiness. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You see, what happened when Christ gave His life, the price has been paid. The fountain for uncleanness has been opened up. The work is done. The way has been made clear. And now we are invited to come and dine with the Savior. And when we put all this together from last week's message, then what we see here at the end of this chapter, get this now, we see faith by Adam and Eve in verse 20, atonement provided in verse 21, security in verses 22 through 24, and hope of something better in verse 24. And this is salvation. We place our faith in Christ. Then a covering of Christ's righteousness is provided for us. We are secure in Christ and we have hope of a better life to come in Christ. This life is not our final destination. And so we find that the greatest fall of mankind is followed up here with the greatest of promise and hope. And through it all, we see how gracious our God is because all of this immediately follows their fall. And people have this idea, God is just this mean man up in the sky. Listen, man, He had every right to come in and destroy them, but He didn't. Our God is gracious. Yes. Yes. Let me give you one last thing before I close. I've mentioned before there's, there's some interesting parallels between Genesis and Revelation. This is another one. 
God had to keep fallen man from the tree of life for our own good. But in eternity, we're going to be restored to the tree of life at the end of the revelation. When there's a new heaven, a new earth. Listen to this. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. You see, we were removed from the tree of life because of sin, and we became cursed. But for those who have now placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, we will be granted access once again to the tree of life in eternity. In the new heavenly Jerusalem, there are three gates. I love this. There are three gates on each side. Revelation 21-25 says, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all, for there shall be no night there. Let me, re- let me reread that because I read it wrong, I think. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. But wait a minute. Remember back there in Genesis, the flaming sword was, was keeping the way. It was guarding the way. There was only one point of access. But in eternity, it's all going to be open. We're all going to have free access. And we will now be granted from all directions. The redeemed will be able to go in and partake of the tree of life there's no more curse. Nothing, nothing sinful can be allowed to enter in there. In fact, the Bible tells us flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God or gain access into God's glorious presence. Therefore, listen to me please, if you're not saved this morning, you cannot be good enough. Amen. You cannot work enough. Amen. But the Bible says ye must be born again Amen. by God's grace through faith. And so as I close, are you going to enter into God's presence at the end of your life? Only you know. Listen, search your heart, friend. Are you going to be there? If you can't say for sure that you will be in God's presence for all eternity, then you need to go to God now for salvation. You say, I don't know what to say. You just ask the Lord to save you. You know, when Peter was sinking, he didn't get into a King James prayer mode. What did he say? Lord, save me. And what did our Lord do? He reached down His hand and He pulled him up. And I want to tell you this morning, you can't get lower down than God's hand can reach. Would you die to yourself and allow Him to save you? Pray with me, please.